Hello, LilyPod listeners. I wanted to start this episode with a little acknowledgement because this episode is going to be releasing on the North American colonial holiday of Thanksgiving. And I think it is especially important on holidays like today to question our position in these colonial celebrations that intentionally wash over the incredibly violent past and present treatment of indigenous peoples in North America. I think it's also important to think critically about the performativity of land acknowledgements and how this works into the colonial narratives that we see in our present day. And so I want to challenge myself and all of you listening to keep thinking critically about our position in all of this and how we might uphold these colonial systems and ways of thinking that might make us feel better in our complicity in colonialism and negate personal accountability in order to absolve ourselves from any guilt, which I think is something to really reflect critically on. This also goes far beyond just colonial holidays and how we celebrate them, but thinking in our everyday life how we uphold or are complicit in systems of colonization. To learn whose land you're on, you can go to native-land.ca. Welcome to the first October episode of the Lily Pod. This is an exciting one because I'm bringing in the spookiness of the season into this episode while still making it queer, still making it feminist the best as I can. I thought it would be really fun to talk about the horror genre um, of movies. Maybe I'll touch a little bit on books I've been reading as well because I love a good horror book. Um, and bringing in queer coding and feminist readings of these stories and these tropes and how sexuality plays a huge role in all of this. So first, I want to start off with the idea of queer coding, which I have done a whole episode on. If you haven't listened to it, it's from last year. Um, I did it on queer coding and shipping and you know, the whole like subtext conversation of finding queerness in places where it doesn't explicitly exist, but where we sort of make meaning out of these stories that aren't explicitly there um, in order to identify with it and feel a connection to it. So in relation to horror, horror movie villains are very often queer coded. And this is something I think I get into in my past queer coding episode. um, And I definitely problematize it. Um, But I think for today, it would be more fun to focus on the less problematic aspects of horror movies today and instead do some fun queer readings of classic horror characters. But I do want to sort of like lay the groundwork with a little bit of problematizing um, the horror genre in relation to queerness and queer coding. So I want to start with talking about the queer significance of subtext and subtextual plot lines. So this is like how we make meaning from stories that aren't explicitly queer because of censorship and the history of censorship in film um, dates back to, I guess, most relevantly the Hayes Code, which was a set of guidelines for what could and couldn't be shown in film between 1934 and 1968. So it prohibited nudity and graphic violence and profanity 
and perverse sexuality put that in quotes um because that basically was just like anything a little bit gay (laughs) so this resulted in the queer coding of characters characters that weren't explicitly introduced as queer but could be read subtextually as being a little fruity so this also translated into the queer coding of villains in horror movies So examples that I've discussed before, I think, are Norman Bates from Psycho, Buffalo Bill from Silence of the Lambs, Angela from Sleepaway Camp. And I think another important point here is um, to take note of how all of these characters are depicted as trans feminine. And this isn't a coincidence. I think that I unpacked this a little bit more in my queer coding episode from last year, but I would really recommend the documentary Disclosure on Netflix, which really goes into unpacking Um, trans representation in the media and especially noting how the horror genre has shaped and manipulated much of public perception of trans women and trans feminine people through their villainization. I think a really interesting topic to explore is the conversation of monsters and queer people. And I was, as I was researching a little bit for this episode, I came across this article that talks about Dr. Harry Benshoff, who wrote this book called Monsters in the Closet, Homosexuality and the Horror Film. And in it, he's talking about how monsters reflect social fears. So things like ostracization, alienation, isolation, sort of like being the outcast, and how often that's sort of like the root of a horror film. Um, or the horror film villain is always the outcast or someone who's alienated and ostracized from society and therefore becomes evil or the villain of the story. And so in this book he wrote, he talks about this thing he coins as the monsterization of queerness. And I wanted to pull this quote that I think is a really beautiful summary of these ideas I'm finding are really interesting. So he says, While straight participants in such experiences usually return to their daylight worlds, both the monster and the homosexual are permanent residents of shadowy spaces, at worst caves, castles, and closets, and at best a marginalized and oppressed position within the cultural hegemony. Queer viewers are thus more likely than straight ones to experience the monster's plight in more personal, individualized terms. So basically what he's getting at in this quote is that queer people are more likely to relate to villains in these horror movies because of their unique positionality and how they're outcast from society, how they're misunderstood, how they're oppressed or hidden away somewhere, whether in like physical spaces like caves and attics and castles or more metaphorically, they're stifled in regards to their sexuality or their gender identity. I think what's interesting here to think about is the role of queer empowerment and queer liberation in all of this, how like identifying with these villains might give us a sense of reclamation, but also thinking about the potential damages and the potential harm of queer people identifying with villains rather than the protagonists and how that can affect self-image and how we understand ourselves in, I guess, like a social or cultural or sexual sense. And as we know, and as I'll dig into a little bit, Um, later is the overlap between sexuality and villainy in horror movies and how sexuality is just like completely demonized and molded to fit this particular narrative of you know the final girl and the slut and whatever else 
Going back to what I said before about monsters and their connection to social fears and social anxieties, I think it's also important to think about the social anxiety of queerness and about transness that so often is replicated in movies Um, Even like Rocky Horror Picture Show, which has definitely been reclaimed as, you know, a queer cult classic, but also thinking about um, the queer codedness of Frankenstein or of, you know, the roles in The Silence of the Lambs and Psycho of the quote-unquote cross-dressing men who are dangerous to society and thinking about how much that shapes public perception but also self-perception of queer people watching these movies and internalizing some of that messaging. But then on the flip side, if we're going to look at it in a more positive, um, empowering light, the potentiality of embracing this identity of a monster in a way transcends the horror genre and also transcends heteronormativity in certain ways because we just get to fully realize ourselves in this role and maybe get some freedom out of that. So I think you can look at it in multiple ways, but I thought it was an interesting conversation to sort of open up before I go into my um, my queer and feminist readings of some classic horror movies. But I did want to introduce that, you know, like problematization of horror and its connection to queer representation, which I didn't want to get too much into because I did do a whole episode on that. And there are much better resources, I think, for you to go to that will probably have much more insight than I do because this is not my field of study, even though I do think it's really interesting. Um, So anyway, I did want to introduce that. But now for the good stuff, I'm going to be talking a little bit about some queer and feminist readings of mine of some classic horror movies. And I'm going to start out with Carrie, which is the 1976 movie based on Stephen King's novel. Um, It's a great one if you haven't seen it. I think everyone like knows the reference of Carrie. So hopefully this reading generally makes sense to you. (laughs) So a lot of the themes in Carrie are about ostracization and fear of sexuality and religious repression, which can, you know, quite clearly be read as an allegory for being closeted. You know, Carrie's bullied at school and she's alienated in her home through her mother's religious control. Her mother is a very devout Christian. And then throughout the movie, we're kind of seeing how she's being oppressed in all these different components of her life and how a lot of that connects back to her sexuality and you know the opening scene is she gets her period and everyone is humiliating her laughing at her and she's completely terrified and doesn't know what's going on because she has been completely misinformed about what periods are and so the first thing we're introduced to is carrie's sexuality and her alienation from it and how unfamiliar it is to her. So I think that really sets like the groundwork for the rest of the movie and how we can read sort of sexual and um, queer interpretations of her transformation as a character. And this is where the interpretation of her final revenge could be read as very liberatory of like, you know, exacting revenge on all the people who have wronged her and her finally just letting go and releasing her power which can definitely be read in a feminist way and also a queer way if we're thinking about the metaphor of her being in a closet, being bullied, being ostracized for her sexuality, whether it's queer or simply feminine. I think no matter how you interpret this movie, it's very clear that there's lots of sexual metaphors going on. 
And one of the biggest themes in Carrie, which is a recurring theme in all of these movies, which I think I touched on earlier as well, is the vilification of female sexual freedom or queer sexual freedom. So in Carrie, we see this in the sort of like grotesqueness of her period and how menstruation is framed as this like terrifying, isolating thing. And then also the role of religion in the film and how oppressive her home environment is because of this religious presence and her very abusive mother, I think is a really interesting thing to consider when we think about the overlap of the horror genre and religious power and female sexuality and how they so often seem to overlap. And there's lots of, you know, messaging going on there. And Stephen King is very into this idea of like the crazy religious woman, which is a whole other thing to unpack. Um, But I do think that a religious reading of this movie is quite interesting. And I don't think that's the vibe for this episode. But I think it's an important theme to bring up because it is a recurring thing throughout the movie and very much, you know, the foundation for Carrie's oppression. Now, the next movie I want to talk about is a formative one. And if you know, you know, I'm going to talk about Jennifer's body. This movie was absolutely formative in my queer awakening, and I think it was for probably a lot of people. I think it's sort of similar to Carrie in the whole revenge plot line more generally, this idea of a girl or woman being harmed and then using her powers, which are perceived as evil, to exact revenge on those who have wronged her. And I do want to unpack that in a minute, but I also want to just, like, take a minute to talk about how incredibly just, like, mind-blowing this movie was to me when I was 12. I think I may have even been younger than that when I saw the trailer, and of course the trailer included the kissing scene between Megan Fox and Amanda Seyfried, which I immediately just made into my whole personality. And of course, it's a little male gazy and... You know, it was it was the mid-2000s. It was 2009 when it came out, so I don't know. I also want to just go back to my point about the revenge plotline in movies that call themselves feminist and to challenge this a little bit because the sort of, like, rape-revenge plotline of movies that so often are advertised as feminist creates this weird narrative of feminism that is really connected to violence And sort of, you know, that like in order for women to feel empowered, they need to be violent. And the other thing with a lot of these movies, I'm thinking especially of the movie I Spit on Your Grave, which is infamously grotesque and an absolute disgrace, I think, to the world of cinema and just the world of women in general. Movies like that use this kind of plot line, the rape revenge story, the fantasy Um, to use really, really graphic and violent and misogynistic images of women and warp it into this weird feminist narrative that makes this weird, violent villain out of a woman that's been harmed in some way and then calls it empowerment. I just find it very weird. And also, like, knowing that the roots of this kind of genre were designed to be watched by men where they were getting drunk and you know, exercising their masculinity and basically being entertained by these really grotesque films of watching women being assaulted. It's just a very exploitative genre and it's brutal, it's violent, it's graphic, and even if 
you know, these movies are now made by women and the plot lines are a little different and they're not as graphic or they're not as necessarily like visually brutal, it still has its roots in these really misogynistic um, filmmakers and audience members who would watch these and get off on them. There's this inherent chauvinism and really intense misogyny that forms these movies, these rape revenge fantasy movies, that I think taints every movie that uses this kind of plot line in the future, even if it is directed by a woman and even if it isn't as graphic. I think I'm always reminded of the roots of this genre and that makes me feel, you know, a little icky about it. And so, I don't know, that's just a little bit of background to add to this conversation. And going back to Jennifer's body, I don't get that same kind of vibe entirely from the movie and maybe that's because of my own contextual experience with it and how it was very much a queer awakening for me and I wasn't really focused on you know the the background story of Jennifer and how she got to be where she was um and that whole plot line even though re-watching it as an older woman and understanding it from that perspective definitely shifted the way I understood the movie. I still, I don't know if I see it in the same way as these like rape revenge um, plotline movies that I find really troubling. I think that it's more so an exploration into queer femme relationships and the messiness of them and the messiness of queer desire i think that it's really fun it's playful it definitely like deals with some more intense or adult themes i guess um but it's just a classic and i don't know i did i but i did want to bring in that conversation of the rape revenge horror movie because that is such a huge huge part of the horror genre that we see time and time again um And I think I'll have some points kind of coming back to this later on in the episode when I'm talking about sexuality in horror movies. But anyway, I did want to bring that up. The last example that I wanted to talk about today um, in terms of queer feminist readings of characters in horror movies is about Thomason in The Witch, which is a newer horror movie. So basically, The Witch is set in 1630 New England in the time of paranoia, witchcraft, um, very, very severe religion, um, and includes a lot of themes about seduction and evil and dangers of the feminine, religion, puritanism, and I think what's really interesting about this movie is it's such a slow burn that you just, like, get to completely swallow all of the deliciousness of the intricacies of each character and the themes that they're exploring and the metaphors and the imagery and this movie's just got so much going for it it's very moody it's very slow it's got lots of suspense you should use subtitles because they speak in very thick um old new english accents and so keep that in mind before viewing if that's a deal breaker for you but this movie just really dives into these themes of being punished for being a woman um, and finding belonging as a woman and liberation and autonomy and how that connects to these forces of evil and witchcraft and especially in the time of 1630 New England and all of these witch trials that are going on um, of understanding women as unholy by nature and needing to be tamed through marriage and motherhood which is a recurring thing in the movie. I think it's a really interesting narrative that explores 
um, evil manifested in feminine sexuality and independence, which I think can also be connected back to queerness and seeing Thomason as maybe a queer woman and not just a woman who's being repressed for her feminine sexuality, but for her queer sexuality in the sense that she is massively or feels massively displaced in her environment, both in her family and in her social, cultural, religious environment. And how this all connects back to witchcraft, I find really interesting. I think the relationship between like dark magic, feminine sexuality, and queerness is such a just like interesting, rich, beautiful, deep exploration into how we understand these things as related to one another or even contingent on one another. So if you're looking for a good, deep, slow burn, metaphorical, kind of heavy, dark, magic-y, witchcraft-y movie that is definitely spooky, like prepared to be spooked, um, but also just like a really interesting exploration of femininity in that time in history and seeing the connections between how it explores that time period and how women are understood now in a social context. I really recommend this movie. I think it's beautifully done. It's by Robert Eggers, who also did The Lighthouse, which is very similar vibe, very slow burn, dark mysterious, disturbing, grotesque, kind of surreal movie. So if that sounds good to you, also recommend that one, but it doesn't have any women in it except for the seductive siren. So <laughs> I don't know if it's the most interesting movie if you're wanting one about femininity, but <laughs> it is a good one for another time. Last little thing I want to touch on is sexuality in horror movies, which I guess has like been the underlying um pulse of this episode in the sense that like all horror plot lines are driven by sex and sexuality we can see this in tropes like the final girl and the slut who always dies first and you know the first people to die are always the two people that are having sex we see this in halloween and friday the 13th and you know so many other examples but I also wanted to talk about the use of weapons in horror movies because I think this is an interesting point um, that so often the weapons used in horror movies that are often used to kill women are phallic shaped. So like knives, chainsaws, even like Freddy Krueger's hand has a very like violent masculine energy to it, which could be clumped into this um, idea that I'm exploring, I guess. And the thing about all these weapons is that they're meant to penetrate female skin, typically. And so, I don't know, this this kind of metaphor is not subtle, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Like, the connection between horror and sex, especially sexual violence against women, is incredibly prevalent in the horror genre and is used over and over. All of these eroticized images of women being killed and blood spurting out of their boobs and all of these all of these images that are ingrained into so many of our brains like all of these movies have an agenda and that agenda isn't necessarily trying to hide itself <laughs> and historically this agenda has to do with instilling normative conceptions of sexuality that center appropriate heterosexuality and pure virginal womanhood you know the final girl is always the virgin that's her thing and the first girl to die is usually the one that's having sex in the opening scene very much perpetuates the madonna whore dichotomy and villainizes any kind of sexuality outside of the norm so any woman that is particularly promiscuous or sexual um gets basically 
what she deserves, which is being killed, apparently, and does this all while queer-coding the villains so that we can associate queerness with villainy, once again revealing their ultimate agenda to squash the non-normative. But we have started seeing other agendas pop up in horror movies as of recently, ones that turn these older narratives on their head and transforming the horror genre into something new, something less oppressive, and leaning more into female or queer empowerment. So there's the Fear Street series, which I personally loved. I think it was it was very campy. It was a little cheesy, but it was fun. Um, the Witch, which I talked about before, and Midsommar, I think, could be read maybe in, in a feminist way. I don't know about queer, potentially. Anyway, even though, you know, we can problematize everything to the end of time, I do think these horror movies, no matter how questionable they might be, can always be sites of meaning making. We can always read something into it. We can always dig into the subtext. We can always find something out of it, even if it's not there. And I think that's the beauty of watching movies. So I'm going to wrap it up here. I feel like this was more of like a, I didn't have a script to this, but I feel like it was more scripty than past episodes that I've done. And so I'm hoping that it was still engaging for you. I had a fun time. I feel like because it's spooky season, I was just really excited to sit down and talk about some horror movies. So I hope this was up your alley. As always, you can feel free to reach out at thelily.pod on Instagram. I love chatting with you. And in the meantime, take care of yourself. If horror movies aren't your thing, then don't put yourself through that. Curl up and watch something cozy. Put on some Gilmore Girls. Let the world melt away. Light your candles. Drink your cocoa. And have a very sweet October week, my friends. I will talk to you soon. Bye.